Hey, last week, by the way, I know I'm saying, y'all think I'm saying this because she's my wife. Stephanie brought a word for us today, or last week, about how to pray. And I just want to encourage someone today with a little testimony from our lives. So, um, Last week, we told you that we have been praying very boldly, very specifically. We've been praying through the season because uh, we had a house need. Like our landlord, they've been the greatest landlords of all time. We love them very much. And we've tried to be the greatest like people to live there of all time. Like, we're going to take care of your house, I promise. And uh, we had, they decided they needed to sell the house, which is totally understandable. But we were like, all right, God, you got to come through. Like, you... You got to come through. Like, we need a miracle. And we started praying and praying and praying. And I'll tell you, Monday night, so she taught on Sunday about prayer. We've been praying boldly, God, give us a house with this many bedrooms. Give us a house, God, that we can afford. It need this number, right? Like, this is our max number, and he knows that number. And we've been praying for all these things. And and uh, and Monday, I was just discouraged. I mean, we were thinking, all right, we we started really looking on Monday, like, all right, God, where are you going to provide? And we went on Zillow. We went on apartments.com. We went, I mean, everywhere. And let me just tell you, the number of houses that fit that criteria on the internet was a big old goose egg. Zero. There was none, right? And so, unless we wanted to live in the hood, which, hey, I'll live in the hood. I've done it before. I'll do it again, right? Like, I'm fine with that. But that's just, we didn't feel at peace about it. And Monday night, our landlord texted us and said, hey, we're going to let y'all stay on as renters and we're only going to increase the price by, you know, very, very little. And God provided for us in a way we did not imagine. So I just want to encourage you, keep praying. God provided. Yeah, come on, give God a hand. That's awesome. I wish I would could share the numbers, but that feels weird, right? But it's awesome. Like it was, it's less than what we were wanting to pay somewhere else. And now we don't have to move. I mean, come, can I get an amen from all the men in the house right now? You ain't got to come help me move. All right, so that's good. Because let me just tell you, I hate moving. And if I ask you to move, just know that you now, like you can ask me to help you move, right? But I'm not going to ask you to do something that I don't want to do for you. So if I don't ask you to move, you're not allowed to ask me to help you move. All right, so that's kind of how this works here. But I wanted to just encourage you with that. God can do it. And God, I believe God wants to do it. And sometimes he's just waiting, like, are you going to ask specifically and I, we didn't specifically even ask for this, but I am so happy I'm not packing up a house right now and trying to move before Easter. My goodness, I've taken years off my life right there. So I'm very, very happy. Well, today, uh, man, I, before we get into the topic today, I wanted just to um, say something to all of you in here because I don't, we don't say this, we haven't said this enough. And I just want to, I want to let you guys know this. We are so thankful for all of you. And I hope that this church has been a blessing to you because um, that's why we're here. We want to be a blessing to you and your family and, and all that. But y'all have been such a blessing to us. And every new face that comes in here, I just get so tickled that God would bring someone to our church to be encouraged. And uh, Stephanie and I love you very much. And our team, for those of you that have been with us even just from day one or you've been with us for a couple weeks, we're so great. We couldn't do this without you. And so I just want to say, we love you. We're so, I feel like I'm about to share bad news. I'm not, I'm just telling you, I love you. Okay. That's all I wanted to let you know. And Stephanie loves you very much. She hates, she can't be here. And I I want to celebrate. We didn't know this till just a second ago. This is our like largest Sunday ever right now. So I'll give God a hand. This is great. And uh, God is up to something and it ain't about how many people are in this room. Hear me. God broke me of that last year. All right. He taught me a big old lesson. I don't, it doesn't matter. 
what matters to me is that you're experiencing the love of Jesus, you're experiencing God's presence in this place, and you're experiencing community together. That's what I care about. And that's all happening, and I'm just... Despite me and Stephanie, that's happening, and that's so awesome. So anyway, today we're going to start a new series called You Asked For It, all right? And uh, let me just, I'm just going to, can I be honest with you today? I have a seat. I've taken a different position as I'm teaching today because this is a less preachy and more teachy today. Um, but I got to say, I started to prepare for this message series and almost immediately regretted it after I started looking at all the questions because if I had spent, you know, X amount of hours studying for a message to give to you guys, it's been times 10 for this because I'm like every question, you'll understand when I see the question, when you see the questions here, um, man, I, I've done a lot of research to try to bring the most biblical answers I can bring on these things. Y'all ask some amazing questions. Uh, but one thing that I quickly realized is that I, the worst thing that I could do is to come up here and just share knowledge with you about the Bible. Because one, I'm I'm not that smart, so I, I'm very unimpressive when it comes to that kind of stuff. Uh, two, I think that there's too many Christians, especially in the Bible Belt, that are too smart for their own good. Like, and so why would I feed into this? I just want to know about the theology of the Bible, and that's all great. You need to know theology. But I started to realize, like, okay, how am I going to make this applicable to your life? All right, so I don't want to answer these questions to come across as I know it all. I have all the answers. Lord knows, and you're about to know, I don't have all the answers about everything. And I, that, I, I try to be a learner. I try to learn, and I want you to be a learner as well and dig into this stuff on your own. But I wanted to start, before I answer some questions, I want to give us a framework to work with. Okay, because if, if we're not working with the framework here, none of these questions are going to do you any good other than, okay, that was cool. Like, okay, it's neat to know. I don't care how much you know about the Bible. I do. I want you to know more, but I, I care how much the Bible is going to change you. That's what the point of the Bible is. It's supposed to change how you act, how you talk, how you interact in relationships. And that's what we're going to try to filter everything through over these next couple of weeks as we answer these questions. So before we get going, I want to give you some statements that we believe here or that we like hold to here. And the first one is this is we don't change the Bible to fit our view. We change, or we use the Bible to change our views. Does that make sense? Like, I'm not going to change and twist what the Bible says to make me feel better about myself. I don't want you to use the Bible and change it to make you feel better about the way you believe about stuff. That's not how this works. No, no, no. We change our lives based on what the Bible says. The Bible is absolute truth. We believe that the Bible is God's word. All right, here's what actually, we're actually pretty guilty of this. All of us are. Like we'll read something in the Bible or we know the Bible says something, but we don't want to face it. And so we're like, well, I'll just act like that doesn't exist. I'm really, it's like a lunch line. Like, okay, I'll take that part of the Bible. I'll take this part of the Bible. And I'm not, I'm going to ignore this other stuff that I don't like. Well, guess what? You don't get to do that. If you're a Christ follower, you got to take the Bible for what it is, and we got to change our lives based on this, um, based on the Bible. In fact, one of our forefathers had made his own version of the Bible. His name was Thomas Jefferson. You ever heard of Thomas Jefferson? Come on. He had what was called the Jefferson Bible, and here's what he literally did to change the Bible. He changed it by cutting and pasting with a razor and glue numerous sections from the New Testament as extractions of the doctrine of Jesus. So he would literally take a razor and he would cut the parts of the Bible that he liked and then he would tape it and glue it to, uh, to make it a big thing. It says, Jefferson's condensed composition excludes, 
So he took out all the miracles by Jesus and most mentions of the supernatural, including sections of the four gospels that contain the resurrection and most of the other miracles and passages that portray Jesus as divine. So Jefferson looked at the Bible and goes, you know what? I love what Jesus is teaching, but I don't believe what Jesus actually did. So I'm gonna make my own version of the Bible that takes all that stuff out of there. Let me just tell you, I'm guilty of it just like you are. We're in a room full of Thomas Jefferson's. We like to take the Bible and go, I don't like that. That makes me feel uncomfortable. I don't know what to do with this. God seems really mean right here. Why is that happening? And all of a sudden, we start rejecting parts of the Bible that we don't like. But the Bible is not like that. The Bible is kind of like, you get it all or you get nothing out of it. And so we don't want to be people that are going to be like the Jefferson Bible. We want to take the Bible for what it is, as uncomfortable as it may be. And one of these questions made me uncomfortable studying it. I had to wrestle with it a little bit. But that's the good part about the Bible. It's living and active, and it's going to help form you and shape you. So we're not going to change the Bible to fit our views. We're going to change our views to fit inside the Bible. Second thing is this, is the Bible is the inspired word of God. Y'all say the word inspired. inspired. Come on, like you're not dead. All right, there we go. Here we go. The inspired word of God. Now, this is crazy. God used 40 people over the span of 1,600 years to write all the books that make up the Bible. So uh, for those of you that might not know, the Bible is not just a book. It's a book made up of a bunch of little books. That's why we have all the different, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are all different letters, or they're, we call them books, but they're letters or they're accounts of something that happened. And we take that collection of books and we make it into a Bible. And then Bible, the Bible is the inspired word of God. So what does that mean? That God's Holy Spirit inspired 40 different people to write the Bible. They were, they were holding the pen, but God was writing the words when they were writing this. And so we have to take everything in God's word as truth. Like we believe that God's word is true. A hundred percent, everything in it is true. And the, statistically, this is insane if you think about it. Think about how all 40 of those people over the span of almost 2,000 years all wrote the Bible that has one cohesive story in it. That's insane. Like that just, if we split up this room right now and I told you to write about a significant part of your life uh, and to recount it and to write it down and, or to tell a story or to write a poem or to write down some wisdom that you might have, if we all did that on our own and put it all together, there's probably a, a close to 40 people in this room, there's a 0% chance that that would all tell one big giant story, right? But the Bible does. Why? Because... 40 different people that actually wrote the Bible weren't the authors of the Bible. God is the author of the Bible. And so he's the only one that can do that. It is the inspired word of God. And the last thing before we get going here is that the Bible can be trusted. Now this is on attack more than anything in the world right now. Can the Bible be trusted? No, that doesn't feel right. And that's not my truth. I'm going to live my truth. No, that's no, no. The Bible can be trusted. And I would actually want to do a whole sermon series on the Bible because it's so fascinating. I could give you seven, eight different reasons why the Bible can be trusted, but I'm just going to hone in on one for a second. The Bible is full of what's called prophecies. Y'all say prophecies. Prophecies are crazy. A lot of people think even right now there's prophecies being, I'm not getting into all that stuff with Russia, but like there are some prophecies that still are going to come to pass, all right? There's about a thousand prophecies in the Bible. There's 300 of them that pertain to Jesus, 
And Jesus fulfilled all those prophecies. What's a prophecy? A prophecy back then was a prediction that was made, like a spiritual prediction that was made that uh, would come true, all right? So there were 300 predictions, if you will, about Jesus, and Jesus made all of those come true. And he like fulfilled those prophecies, all right? So, uh, and it wasn't just general stuff like Jesus will be kind and he will be a nice person. Like that's a pretty general prophecy that you can you could probably get right if you just said that right now, right? No, no, these were like specific property prophecies like hey, Jesus is going to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. That's pretty specific like hey, this person that's going to be the savior of the world, he's going to be born in a little bitty town called Bethlehem. Like hey, the Savior of the world is going to be born in Portland, Tennessee. Think about that. Like something like that small. People are like, Portland, Tennessee? I don't even know what that is, right? Like, hey, Jesus, uh, this person that's going to be the Savior, he's actually going to have fear for his life and his family is going to flee to Egypt. Like these are very specific prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. Now, one person, there's, there's been some statisticians that has figured out the mathematics here. And listen, I'm the worst person ever to give you this, but I'm going to give it to you. One person just fulfilling eight of the prophecies the chances of that are one in 10 to the 17th power. That's, a, that's that number right there. That's 17 zeros after the one. That's what that means. That's insane. So one person fulfilling eight of those prophecies is like one in 10 to the 17th power. I don't even know what that number is, but it's really big. Here's uh, something to put it into perspective. Like imagine if I had a bucket of tennis balls and I put nine green tennis balls in there and one red tennis ball in there, what would your chances be of getting a red tennis ball? Any math people out there, huh? 10, like one out of 10 chances you're going to pull out that red tennis ball. The chances of this happening, just with eight prophecies, is if you were to put that many silver dollars somewhere, it would take a space that was as big as Texas, two feet tall, full of silver dollars. And then I put one penny in there, one penny in a sea of that many silver dollars in the whole state of Texas, two feet high. And I were to put you in a helicopter and say, okay, we're flying over Texas. Where do you want us to let, let you down? We're going to let you down. You're going to stick your hand in there one time and you're going to pull out one coin. That's the odds of you picking the right coin is that right there. That's insane. That's just eight prophecies. To a person fulfilling 16 prophecies is one in 10 to the 45th power. So 45 zeros. A person fulfilling 48 prophecies is one in 10 to the 157th power. Jesus fulfilled 300 prophecies out of the New Testament. That's wild. Like, I don't even know if our brains can comprehend this number. Imagine a 300. It's crazy. The Bible can be trusted. And there's still some prophecies that are going to come true. The Bible hasn't gotten one wrong yet. So... If you haven't got right with Jesus, all right, the prophecies will happen. I'm just, statistically, I feel pretty good about saying that. They're going to happen. So why not trust in this book? And this story is all about Jesus. The whole Bible, it's all about Jesus. And so anyway, I wanted to share those three things. The Bible, um, we don't change our lives to fit the Bible. Uh, sorry, we change our lives to fit the Bible, not the other way around. Uh, the Bible's inspired word of the God. And then thirdly, the Bible, it can be trusted. And, and lastly, this is like my disclaimer. Before we get going and before we start diving into these questions, I reserve the right to be wrong about any of this, okay? So listen, I am a person, I'm a human being. I did the best that I could. I feel confident enough to share these with you, but I might learn something in two years ago, man, I think I was wrong about that one. And now, you know, whatever I, I reserve the right to be wrong. I'm a human being. And if you don't like that, you're at the wrong church. All right. So 
I'm going to start off these first few um, with some kind of lighthearted stuff, some stuff that's like, I don't know how much application there is to these, but they were interesting questions and I think they'll be fun. First one is this, why did Jesus pick 12 disciples? Like, why not three? Why not six? Why not 11? One of the guys was going to betray him, like betray him, right? And like, get him killed. Why not just pick 11, Jesus? Surely he knew that, right? Uh, this is a great question. And if you ask this question, I love, the, I love this type of stuff. This means nothing. You could go the rest of your life and not know this and have a great relationship with God, but I think it's fun. So, but to understand this, we got to understand a little history about the people of Israel. All right, the people of Israel, uh, when they first started, Abraham had two sons, right? He had Isaac and Jacob. Well, Jacob had 12 sons, and, and those 12 sons would become the tr- what we call the tribes of Israel, okay? And so those tribes would be how people would be broken up from that moment up until even when Jesus was here for thousands of years, that's how people would, would break themselves up. They'd be like, hey, I'm Clint. I'm from the tribe of Hendersonville. Like, that's how this would be, right? Like, I'm from the tribe of Tennessee, baby, and that's where I'm from. That's my bloodline. That's my family. That's my lineage. And the way that God did it was every tribe, of Israel had a different role that they played in God's kingdom, of the Israeli kingdom. And so some of them were priests, some of them were the warriors, some of them, they just had different jobs. And so that's how the people of Israel knew that they were truly Jewish, is they could trace their bloodline all the way back to the original 12 tribes of Israel. It was a really big deal. And it all centered around Abraham. He's like Father Abraham. Y'all know that? Like, Father Abraham had many sons. Come on, y'all know this. Had many sons, had father. Okay. Okay, y'all see, like, that's like the part of the, the thing. Like, it was all centered around Abraham. Abraham was the patriarch. Oh, I just spit everywhere. Sorry. I don't have COVID, but if I did, everyone out here would be done. Uh, but he was the patriarch of, of Israel. Like, he was like the, the dude because he had sons that, you know, that eventually made up these 12 tribes of Israel. Well, Jesus shows up on the scene and that dude's like, I'm changing everything, baby. And so we don't really understand this picture because we're not first century Jews. But back then, people were looking at Jesus, this person that was performing these crazy miracles. Like Jesus rose several people from the dead. Like this guy, and he was like, multiplying food for all these people and like doing crazy stuff. And he was teaching and it was just captivating. But they would look at him and goes, Jesus has 12 people around him. What does that mean? Or they, well, we would look at that and say that, but they would look at the Jesus with 12 people and go, huh, that's awfully like confident of Jesus, right? Like, and so what Jesus was doing is he was painting a picture by the people he chose saying like, hey, the old 12 tribes of Israel, They were all built around Abraham, but this new kingdom is built around me. And in fact, I'm not using the 12 tribes. I'm not using these people that are patriarchs. I'm using people like fishermen, tax collectors. I'm using people that no one else would pick to build my kingdom around. And so Jesus picked 12 disciples to show people that, hey, this new way of doing things, I've changed everything. This new way of doing things is all about the kingdom I'm building and the the kingdom that I'm going to reign in. And he was picking 12 to replace the original 12 tribes of Israel. Does that make sense, everybody? All right, great. We're moving on. Next one. This is a good one. How many people in here have pets or you've had a beloved dog that's passed away that's buried under the tree in the backyard? Come on. Next one's for you. Will we see our pets in heaven? How many are worried about what I'm about to say right now? Okay. Let me give you a simple answer. If it's a cat, no. Okay. (laughs) 
Miss Donna got mad. I said that earlier. She didn't, she didn't like that answer. Okay, but in all seriousness, cats are from hell. So uh, the, Bible, the Bible does say that the devil prowls around like a lion. What's a lion? It's a cat. All right. Um, so they're from the devil. I'm also very allergic to cats. Uh, but anyway, in all seriousness, uh, do y'all want the good news or the bad news first? All right, we'll do the good news first. Here we go. Good news, Revelation 19, 11, it says this. Then I saw heaven opened and a white, what's that word? Horse was standing there. Its rider was named Faithful and True, for he judges fairly and wages a righteous war. Okay, so here, and there's also several other places in the Bible that depict us that are Christians riding on horses as well. So we do know that there are at least horses in heaven. All right, so how many of y'all like horses? Horses terrify me. All right, but... Uh, and yeah, the Harris's got some horses. They're super nice, though. I like them. Um, but we we do know there's horses in heaven, and we're going to use those at the end. God's going, Jesus is going to use those at the end of time, and and do His thing and all that. But we so we do know that there are animals in heaven. We do know there are horses. Uh, to give you the sh- the bad news is is actually we don't know if our pets will be in heaven. Now, the Bible doesn't speak to it, all right? Uh, so I'm that, I know that kind of leaves you exactly where you were before you came in here, but it doesn't say, but let me give you two thoughts on this, okay? Two thoughts on, do my pets go to heaven? First, um, we can be certain that if it will bring God more glory to help us enjoy him forever while we're in heaven, God will reunite us with our pets, all right? So if it's gonna bring God more glory to have our pets in heaven, and that's how we're gonna enjoy eternity, I would be willing to say your pets are going to be there unless it's a cat. All right. Secondly, I'm joking. I won't be allergic to cats in heaven. I don't care. Secondly, here's what I want to really hone in on for a second. We have to guard our hearts a little bit and not allow our love for pets or animals to diminish our affection for God. Okay. Oh, watch out. I see some eyeballs roaming in here. Pets are great. We have a pet. He's all right. He's pretty good. I like him. Uh, but here's the deal. When you get to heaven, I don't know. I know you love your pet more than anything, but nothing's going to diminish like the love of God that you have in that moment. You too. So I don't, I don't know if you're even going to care when you get to heaven, to be honest with you. Heaven is that good. So if you love your pets and animals that much, heaven is infinitely better than that. So that's pretty encouraging. All right. So does that answer the question? Will we see our pets in heaven? I have no idea. All right. Next one. I love this one. Will I still go to heaven if I don't tithe? Ooh, we about to talk about money. All right, y'all buckle up. All right, here we go. No, I'm just joking. Uh, the short answer is yes. Of course you're gonna go to heaven if you don't tithe. Uh, in fact, the Bible says this in Ephesians 2, 8, 9. It says, God saved you by his grace. I'm gonna say, God saved you by his grace. It did not say, God saved you because you tithed. God saved you because, man, like you gave all that money away to the church and they did so much great things through you. No, no, no. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for any of this. It is a gift. Y'all say gift. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done. Salvation is not a reward for tithing, okay? So none of us can boast about it. Think about this. If you could go to heaven just because you tithe, like some people are gonna have it cush up there because they can tithe more. They make more money so they can give more, right? Like they might be not have any debt and so they can tithe more. Like that's just not how God's economy works. The only way you go to heaven is through Jesus and what he did for you. 
You get to go to heaven because of God's tithe to us. Think about that. A tithe is the first of your increase. Jesus is God's only and first son, and he gave him to us. We get to go to heaven because of God's tithe, not the other way around. All right, so I want you to understand that. So you can go to heaven. Now, I want to talk about tithing for a second. You can go to heaven uh, because you don't tithe, but my question is, why would you want to? Like, why would you want to go to heaven without tithing? And I'm not, and let me hear me real clear. If you think I just want your money at this church, give it to another church. I really don't care. Like, honestly, I don't care. Give it to another church, tithe somewhere else. But I do believe that the Bible teaches that when we tithe, God blesses us. And that doesn't mean that we get, we, I'm not preaching a prosperity gospel where you give money and you're going to get a free airplane and have a vacation home in Florida. No, no, no. He might. I mean, he does some people, he blesses some people financially, but your life will be blessed. Uh, and the Bible teaches that the tithe is the first 10% of your increase. Not the last 10%, it's the first 10%. Here's the principle. Everything that you have, your car, your boat, your house, your kids, like literally everything that you have is from God. He owns it all. If he did not want you to have it, he would take it from you before we left his church service. I can guarantee it. It's all his. But every time that we get paid, every time we get an increase in our lives, no matter what it is, this is what I believe, no matter what it is, we are faced with a test. Are we going to pass the test? It's a pass or fail test. It's not, you don't get a percentage grade on this. It's a pass or fail test. Are you going to pass the test or fail the test? And the test is, are you going to trust me with the first of your life? Okay. And many of us might not pass that test. And we're afraid, like, Clint, you don't understand how tight our finances are. If we give that 10%, like, we're not going to be able to eat. And let me just tell you, I totally understand where you're coming from. But I'm telling you, I, I can tell you this. I'm about to read a verse. I can tell you this with confidence. You tithe and watch God blow you away. Watch it. I, I'm 100% I'm confident. God has a way of doing more with the 90% than you can do with your 100%. That's just how God's economy works. It says this in Malachi 3.10. It says, bring all the tithes to the storehouse. Okay, that's what they called. Back then the church ran the, the, they would bring all the food that they would get from their crops and all that, and they would put it in the storehouse of the church, and the church would disperse it and do the ministry. Uh, this works the same here, except... You can bring me food, I guess. I just don't know what I'll do with it. But it works the same thing. Bring the tithes to the, into the storehouse so there will be enough food in my temple. If you do, says the Lord of heaven's armies, I will open the windows of heaven for you. Listen, I will pour out a blessing so great that you won't have enough room to take it in. Try it. Put me to the test. God is telling you to test him in this. Like, so yes, you can go to heaven but why would you want to miss out on this blessing in your life? I don't know. And if you think I'm just trying to get your money, give it to someone else. I'll give it to another church. I can give you a thousand churches that would love it, all right? But I'm just telling you, God has a way of blessing you when we tithe, all right? You can go to heaven if you don't tithe, but why would you want to? All right, next one is this. Let's dive in. We're going to go into some deeper waters here. Y'all ready? Is there such a thing as once saved, always saved? So can you lose your salvation? Can I get saved 
and not go to heaven because I've done something bad in my life. All right, this is, a ve- this is one of the ones that I like had to wrestle with a little bit, okay? This is a very complicated question. And I'm gonna read a little bit of this. I would say it this way. I believe that it's not a question of once saved, always saved, but more of a question of if saved, always saved. Like for me, and what I view what the Bible is teaching here is, man, when, when God saves you, when Jesus comes into your life, that changes your life. That changes how you interact with people. That changes the words that you say. That changes the things that you do. That changes how you respond. That changes a lot of things about your life. And that process, and, but that process can take some time. It's called the process is called sanctification. That that process means every day God is making me more like Him over and over, day after day, day after day. And so um, that process takes some time. So maybe you're in here and you're like, man, I, 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 you know, sometimes I say bad words when someone cuts me off in traffic and I'll drop 17 F-bombs on the way to church and I feel bad when I get here. Does God still love me? I said the F-word today. Ah, what's going on? Okay, God loves you. And no, I don't believe you've lost your salvation. I believe God's still working on that in you, but let him work. I think we know people by the fruit that they produce in their life. That's what the Bible teaches. But I will say this, the Bible teaches on both sides of this coin, and this is where it gets hard. The Bible teaches that, man, you can have eternal security, but the Bible also teaches a warning to those of us that might be walking that fine line that we've asked Jesus into our life and we haven't changed and nothing in our life looks different. Well, the Bible would warn you several times in several different places like, hey, get your act together. All right, and, and that's what I say on that is, is a person that is saved it, they truly start to change. And sometimes that change takes a little bit. And sometimes some of that change is immediate. But I'll tell you what, you live every day and you live for God every day the best that you can. It ain't something you got to worry about. Okay, the last question that we're going to focus on here, this is the big one. Why did God create sin? Whew. All right, whoever asked this question, thank you. All right, you have... I, I dug into this one pretty deep, um, and we could spend an entire like college course talking about this question right here. Why did God create sin? Oh, man. Okay. So first off, it's never a bad thing to ask these questions or to wonder these things. Like, And if you have questions about God and you're questioning things of God, you're, you're coming to the right place, okay? Why did God create sin? There's no such thing as a bad question. However, I would challenge this question, all right? And I'm going to do that a little bit, then I'm not confronting. I'm just, I would challenge the way that this question is asked. So I wanted to go back to the very beginning. When did the first sin happen? It's in Genesis chapter three. It says this, the serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, Eve, did God really say, like, isn't that how all sin starts? Like, hey, did God really say that you can't have sex breaking married? Does he really say that in the Bible? I mean, come on. It's like, that's not really in the Bible, but I mean, it's implied. It's like, did God really say that, right? That's how it all starts. You must, did God really say you must not eat of the fruit of any of these trees in the garden? Of course, we, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat it or even touch it. God never said don't touch it. God just said, don't eat it. But she's now starting to add things to what God was saying, right? Like, you must not even touch it. If you do, you'll die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you'll be like God, knowing both good and evil. And the woman was convinced. 
She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious. And she wanted the wisdom it would give her, just like the serpent said, right? So she took some of the fruit and she ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it too. What's the lesson we can learn? If God wouldn't have created women, we would never be in this mess. I'm joking. Totally kidding. I should not have said that. I'm sorry. I apologize. Now, here's some things that we can learn from this. All right, here's, I wanted to read that because that's kind of where it all started for us, right? Like, here's what we know. What God created was good. If you look at the creation story, he created light and dark. He's, and he looked at and goes, that's, that's good. I like that. That's good. He created land. That's good. Created all the fish and even the cat somehow. And he said, that's good, right? Like, he, he created these things. And he said it was good. But then he created man. He created human beings. And he looked at it and said, that's really good. Like, that, that's, that like satisfied him. So we know that what God made was good. And one of the good things that God gives us is the power of choice. Like we have the ability to choose right and wrong because he knew like what kind of love is it if someone's a robot and they have to love me because that's what I programmed them to do. That's not love. That's you being a cyborg. And I don't think God created cyborgs. I think God created people. And we have this ability to choose and it's simple. But God saw that that ability was ultimately good for us. And you have the opportunity every single day. Are you going to choose to do what is right? Or are you going to choose to do what is wrong? It says this in James chapter 1, verse 13. It says, and remember, when you are being tempted, do not say, God is tempting me. God is never tempted to do wrong, and he never tempts anyone else. It wasn't God in the garden trying to get Eve to eat the fruit, right? It was... The serpent, it was the devil. Temptation comes from our, what's that next word? Own desires, which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions. And when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. James is telling us that sin has never come from God. Like sin just does not come from God. So did God create sin? No, I would challenge you and say that makes you put the blame on God. And this is telling us, like, you can't blame God when you sin. Sorry, that's just not how this works. You can't blame God when you sin. In fact, it comes from our own desires. We have the freedom to choose. Are we going to do the right thing? Or are we going to do the wrong thing? And a lot of times we choose the wrong thing. So did God create sin? No. Did God allow sin? Yes. Passively. It's weird. And we could get real deep into this if you wanted to. I'd be glad to have coffee and talk with you about it but, or send you some resources to look it up on your own. But, but did God create sin? No, I don't believe he did. I believe he allowed sin. Now, why would he do something like that? Now, that's a great question that I hope we ask when we get to heaven. Here's my answer to that. Is God knows that the best thing for us is for us to glorify God with our whole lives. That's the best thing for us, and God knows that. And so God could have allowed sin so that we would have a need for him and glorify him more after we become believers in Jesus. And so there's a whole, again, we could get down the rabbit hole and all that. But I don't believe God created sin. I believe we, we have the ability to choose and God allowed us to make those decisions. And we did, and it didn't take very long. And here we are. And so I don't believe God created sin. I believe he allowed it. But I want to wrap up today and I'm going to go back to James. In verse 14 and 15, it says this, temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions. 
And when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. The Bible also teaches this. It says this in Romans 3, 23. It says, for everyone, every person that's ever lived, except for Jesus, every person has sinned. And we all fall short of God's glorious or God's perfect standard. So here's why I would take, not take issue with, but here's why I would challenge the way that question was asked, is that sin is never God's fault. Sin is always our fault. And sin is something that we all do. Sin is something we all do. Every person in here, you probably did it today. Coming to church, you may have fought with your wife, got out of the car, you're mad, and now you got to act like you're happy in front of everybody. Like, you know, that happens to all of us. Except Steph and I, we never do that. But you, you, we all sin. And when we sin, even one time, we miss the mark. God's mark is perfection, and we miss that mark. And we fall short of the standard it takes for us to get to heaven. So when we sin, it separates us from God. And it's a separation that no matter how hard we try, we can't cross over that separation. No matter, I mean, we could give all the money in the world. We could come to church. We could serve. uh, We could do everything in our power. We could do anything we wanted to do. But guess what? It ain't good enough to get to heaven. Why? Because we sinned. We're called sinners. The Bible calls us sinners so many times. But here's the good news. Romans 5, 8, it says, But God has showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. So while you were in a state where you could not get to God, you could, no matter how hard you tried, you couldn't get there if you wanted to. While we were in that state, God came to us. He doesn't expect us to get to him. We can't. But instead, he said, I'm going to send Jesus, I'm going to send my son, and I'm going to pay the price it takes to win them back. And so while we, the only reason we sin is because of us. Like we make the bad decisions and we mess up and we sin. But that sin separates us from God. But God loved us so much that he sent Jesus that even while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us so that we could have a way to know him. And that is what the Bible is all about. That's the question that every soul is trying to answer is, how do I matter? Like, how do I find significance in my life? How do I find fulfillment in my life? It's this right here. You have to have a relationship with Jesus, period. And the only way you can have a relationship with Jesus is by accepting what he did for you. He paid the price for you. You can't get to God on your own. So God came to you and he made a way for you. Let's bow our heads and let's close our eyes. I I just want to offer this to everyone in here. Maybe you're a person and you've not made that decision to follow Jesus. I want to give you that chance this morning because that's where your life really starts right there. So the count of three, I'm just going to ask you to quietly just raise your hand in here. No one's looking around. I'm not going to give you the microphone and make you pray in front of everybody. But I do want you just to raise your hand and say, hey, that's me today. I need to start my relationship with Jesus. One, two, three. That's you. Come on, raise your hand. Awesome. You can put your hands down. And if that's you, I just want you to say this prayer. This prayer is not magical words but it's just a way to, to show God kind of what we're thinking, what we're feeling in this moment and invite him into our lives. So, dear God, thank you 
for dying on the cross for me. And I invite you into my life. I make you the Lord of my life. And in the best way I know how, I will live for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Come on, y'all give God a hand for the things that he did today in this room.